Matthew 27, uh, and chat, and I'm sorry, in verse 24, um, in the Bibles that are provided for you, there it, that's going to be on page 487. So if you would find that, then we'll read together. The Bible says this. It says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In our current series, which is entitled His Last Days, that we're doing leading up to, of course, Easter and the celebration that we'll have, remembering his amazing, glorious, life-altering resurrection. So far, we've looked at the Last Supper, and we've looked at the time that Jesus spent praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And today, we're going to consider the trial of Jesus, which led to his death by crucifixion. To say that Jesus had a trial is actually a little bit misleading. After he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ was dogged from that moment by an angry mob. And additionally, Jesus actually stood before two of the Jewish leaders. He stood before um, Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest, and he also stood before the high priest Caiaphas, um, along with the Jewish ruling council. And before those group of people, he was convicted of blasphemy for his claim to be the Son of God. He was also sent to stand before Herod Antipas, which was the leader or who was the leader of Galilee, the ruler of Galilee, where Christ was from, where he was had lived most of his life. Antipas wanted Christ to perform tricks for him. He was a very casual about Jesus, and he wanted to see some miracle performed. And, and when Jesus didn't do that, uh, Antipas mocked him and uh, tried to shame him. But interestingly enough, after all that, he found Christ innocent of all the charges that had been brought against him by his people. But what most people remember when we talk about the trial of Jesus is how Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea. And this is the trial that we're going to focus on today the most. In particular, we're going to take a close look at Pilate's reactions to Jesus. And we're going to try to discover exactly what they meant. Now, before we proceed, you need to know that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, record the details of the trials of Jesus. The details are similar in all of the accounts, although some of them add more for us to know. They, they add things that the others don't. For example, all the writers mention that Peter denies Jesus three times, as Jesus had predicted. And all of them mention that when Pilate wanted to release Jesus, the, the mob demanded to have Barabbas, a, a murderer, an insurrectionist, um, released to them instead. And they all mention that Jesus was silent in the face of his accusers. But Luke is the only writer who mentions Jesus standing before Herod Antipas. And Matthew is the only one who mentions the guilt-ridden Judas hanging himself. And John is the only one who mentions Annas at all. And, 
And he gives us much more detail about Pilate's questioning of Jesus. And so we're going to really kind of stick to the Gospel of John's version of these events today. John begins his account of Jesus' meeting with Pilate, his kind of forced meeting with Pilate, by editorially noting that the mob came to his headquarters very early in the morning, probably around sunrise, and they would not, the, the mob that brought him would not enter the building. The reason for that was as good Jews, they, they couldn't enter a Gentile's dwelling house without becoming themselves defiled. And being defiled, they would not have been able to celebrate the Passover, which was happening that weekend. Do you find it odd, when you think about that, that their, their, their concerns, their religious concerns were so high that they wouldn't even be willing to break a tiny little rule because of what it would cost them religiously, and yet they were willing to falsely condemn and even murder their Messiah. Isn't that odd? But you shouldn't be surprised. Jesus talking about the same group once, once uh, called him out and he said, You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. The nature of religion, if you don't understand what religion is, and, and if you're kind of new to this stuff, let me tell you, we in this church are not one bit concerned about religion. We don't give a flying flip about religion. We don't give a flying flip. Am I allowed to say that, by the way? I need to get a, okay. We don't give a flying flip about, about religious ceremony, about decorum and protocol. We don't care about any of that stuff. What we want to know is are we saved by the power of the grace of the Lord Jesus, and are we walking in relationship with him? It's a whole different ballgame. See, the nature of religion, so you'll know what it is. It's to major on minors and to minor on majors. Jesus once told the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He was saying that he wasn't interested at all in one more slaughtered bull, one more slaughtered sheep. He wasn't worried about their precision and their religious ceremony. He wanted people to throw themselves on his mercy alone and not on their works for their salvation. Pilate, in this early morning meeting, he comes out to meet them and Seems a little annoyed by the intrusion, as I am when people show up at my house at daybreak. And he asks Jesus, or he asks them rather, what Jesus has done to warrant this urgent demand for justice. And when the mob responds, they say, well, he's an evildoer, or else we wouldn't have brought him to you, Pilate. Pilate tells him, great, go judge him by your own law. They remind him that under Roman rule, they're not authorized to sentence anybody to death. And when Pilate hears talk of the death penalty, he realizes the seriousness of their intentions. And he calls Jesus to himself inside the headquarters for a private interview. And Pilate begins by asking Jesus point blank, according to the accusations of the Jews. He says, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered like this. He said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate, amazed, a little perplexed, a little put off by the question, he asked Jesus concerning their accusations. He says, what have you done? 
But instead of defending himself and explaining what had happened and how he got into this predicament, instead of answering his accusers at all, Jesus begins to speak about the nature of his kingdom. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And and this is evidenced, Pilate, by the fact that his followers are not fighting for his release. And this talk of kingdoms prompts Pilate to respond like this. So, okay, so you are a king then. And this is what Jesus answers. He says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, listen to this carefully. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Want to know how to sniff out a liar? Want to? Anybody who says that what Jesus has said is wrong knows nothing about the truth. He said it right here. He said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And this prompts a most curious response from Pilate. Pilate looks at him and he says, what is truth? Now that might just fly right over your head, but don't miss it. This is, this is very much an incredible turn of events. The one in charge, the boss, the governor, the one with the power to give life or death, the one tasked with determining the truth of right and wrong, of just and unjust, looks in the eyes of a beat-up Nazarene carpenter, square in the eye, and asks, what is truth? The very night before Jesus had told his disciples in the upper room, he said, guys, I am the truth. Remember? John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the, and the life. He said, I'm the truth. His answer, this is what Jesus is. He's the answer to every question. He's the fulfillment of every longing. He's the secret behind every riddle about the meaning of life, the meaning of the universe. The answer is Jesus. He is the truth. Pilate, with all of Rome's power, behind him when he spoke caesar was speaking he had all of rome's power behind him and in that moment he asked this question and it just proves that he's stripped bare in the presence of one so great the wise man becomes a fool the strong man becomes weak the rich man becomes poor all with one question what is truth isn't that the, isn't that the question that our entire world is asking today what is truth? So Pilate and the high priest Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas and Herod and the mob, they're all exposed by this comment that Jesus makes that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What do we learn by Jesus saying that about those people and all the mob that brought them? We learn that they are deaf. They're deaf. It's worse than that. Jesus told the Pharisees earlier in John that they were of their father, the devil. Yikes. He said, you're of the, your father the devil. He says when he speaks, he speaks out of his own character because he is a liar and the father of all lies. And what he was saying to those people, he was saying, you have no part in the truth. Let me blow away a modern day cultural myth. Truth is not relative. Truth is solid. Truth is concrete. Truth is objective. And his name is Jesus. What about you? What about you? What about me? Is there evidence that you and I are of the truth? Or as scary as it sounds, is there evidence that we're of our father, the devil? You can know 
whose you are by which voice you're listening to. I don't mean which voice you're listening to. I mean which voice you're listening and responding and obeying. This doesn't mean that you just try to have good morals and that you're sufficiently religiously proficient. The Pharisees were all of those things. It means that you live by God's voice. He's the air. He's the food. He's the water. You live by God's voice, Jesus' voice. You find it in His Word, and you submit to His voice, and you acknowledge Him not only as Savior, but as Lord, as King. Jesus said to Himself, Why do you call me Lord, and you don't do the things I say? The next page in this story is awesome. It's one that is simultaneously scandalous and beautiful, all at the same time. Pilate has become convinced that Jesus has done nothing deserving capital punishment. And so to try to get Jesus off the hook, he reminds the crowd of this benevolent tradition he has every Passover that he would release a prisoner to them, usually a political prisoner, just as a show of goodwill. And and, and so he asks them, okay, guys, we're here. It's Passover. Do you want me to release to you Jesus, the, the king of the Jews? And they said, no. In fact, they begin to cry out, give us Barabbas. We don't want this guy. We don't want this Nazarene. Give us Barabbas. And, and that's interesting because this man Barabbas is described in the four Gospels in three different ways. He's described as a murderer. He's described as an insurrectionist and as a robber. He, he's an all-around bad guy. He, he's even a terrorist by our our modern-day definition. They've, they've taken Jesus and they've asked for Osama bin Laden in his place. But the Jews are so intent, they, they're so determined to put Christ to death that they demand that this man, this terrorist, Barabbas, be returned to society. Pilate tries to persuade them to take Christ, but no, no, again and again, they demand Barabbas. Now, let me tell you something. I... I I found something out that's really cool this week in studying for this message. And do you know what Barabbas' name means in Greek? Anybody brushed up on your Greek enough to figure that out? His name means this. It means son of the father. Just chew on that for just a second or two. The name Barabbas means son of the father. And in this ultimate act of irony, we're going to see several acts of irony in this, in this episode, but in the ultimate act of irony, the Jews were demanding that the only begotten Son of the Father be exchanged, be given as a ransom for this undeserving, filthy, already condemned criminal. And you might think that that is an ultimate miscarriage of justice, and you would be right. But I am here to tell you, that this is a beautiful picture of grace. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of grace. The true son, the true son, the one that has been the son for all eternity. He lays down his life for the undeserving one. The innocent one dies and the guilty one, no one's questioning his guilt. And the guilty one goes free. Not because he's found innocent, but because his His place is taken by another. Do you not see the gospel in that? Do you not see the gospel in that? The innocent one dies 
The guilty one goes free. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin with a rap sheet that's 10 miles long, get off scot-free because someone else, someone innocent, takes our... But even that's not the full beauty of it. I'm not done. Because, see, the precious Son of God has taken our place. And because He has, now John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel that we have been given the right to be called, what? The sons and the daughters of God. So the true Son of God died. And guess what happens to the the criminal? He becomes the Son of the Father. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. We are joint heirs. and But the word joint heirs means that we are sharing in all the benefits of the true son. 1 John 3, 1 exuberantly tells us, See what kind of love the Father has given us? That we, yes you, think about those dark closets, those, those, those nasty secrets in the corners of your life, that we have been called the children of God, and so we are. You! With all your criminal behavior, your murder, your insurrectionism, your robbery, have been called the children of God by grace. It's been lavished on you. You were Barabbas in your sin. You're guilty of many sins. You're worthy of death. You're despised. You're abandoned to prison for your guilt of your many crimes. But now, that beautiful name has a different context. You are Barabbas. You're truly the son. You're truly the daughter of the father through adoption by grace. Man, I wanted to get a Barabbas tattoo when I read that. Paul, can you hook me up with your guy, man? (laughs) Trying once more to satiate the blood, the bloodlust of the Jews, Pilate has Jesus brutally flogged. If you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, that probably does a pretty close job of showing you what that was like. And while he's being flogged, the cruel soldiers who fulfill that order are mocking him the entire time. They twist a thorn branch into a crude crown and thrust it down upon his brow. They array him in a purple robe, the color of royalty. And they mockingly say to him as they punch him with his, their fists, they say, Hail, King of the Jews! Through all of this, Pilate says to the crowd, I find no fault. And then he brings Jesus out once more. They see the crown of thorns on his head, the purple robe sticking to his skin because of the quickly coagulating blood now covering the Lord. And Pilate says to them, Behold the man. Behold the man, the perfect man, the innocent man, yet this man robed in shrouds of mockery, looking like a pathetic excuse for a king, is the representative man standing in the place of all of the others, all the other men, the women, the boys, the girls, behold the man. This is what, what Paul is trying to capture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he says, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we, the criminals, the Barabbas, we might become the righteousness of God. Yet after all this, The crowd cries all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. Finally, Pilate says, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. But the people insist, telling Pilate of how he made himself out to be the son of God. How dare he? This is the highest blasphemy according to their law. But hearing that, that he made himself out to be the son of God, and after what he had seen and heard throughout the day, 
Uh, this sends a cold shiver down Pilate's spine. He re-enters his headquarters and asks Christ, Where are you from? Jesus refuses to answer. Pilate's astounded by this. He's seen many cowards beg for their lives. He's seen many rebels defiantly shout and spit in the face of their would-be executioners. But for a man to be completely silent, this makes no sense to Pilate at all. He says to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Surely Jesus would see the folly of making no defense to these accusations. Surely he would plead to be saved from death by the all-sovereign authority of Rome. Jesus looks at him calmly and lets him know exactly who it is in charge on that terrible day. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. See, Jesus knew that God the Father was in charge and everything would happen exactly as he had decreed everything. So from this point forward, Pilate sought all the more to release him, but the Jews began to use Pilate's imperial loyalties and his career aspirations against him. They said, no friend of Caesar's would release this man. If you think he's a king, you're a traitor to Caesar, Pilate. So Pilate brings Jesus out. Pilate sits down on the judgments, and he says to the crowd, Behold your king. Behold your king. At first, Pilate looks at him with pity, and he said, Behold the man. Now, he says, Behold your king. What exactly was Pilate saying? Maybe he was mocking the Jews. Maybe he was showing all the power of Rome that would come crashing down on any Judean that would make such ridiculous claims of authority and rulership. Maybe he was struck by the irony. These idiots have chosen Barabbas the terrorist over this haunting and gentle man who had stood silent before his accusers. But whatever the case, when Pilate said, Behold your king, he was speaking inadvertently, yet prophetically. For in just a few more moments, just a little while longer, this king would begin his reign Though no one in this earthly realm would even notice because they'd be unable to see beyond the blood, the gore, the weeping, the cruelty, the mockery, the shame, and the death, this was Jesus' coronation day. Soon he would be lifted up. And what did he say? He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Soon he would cry out, it is finished, having defeated all his enemies, sin, death, hell, and the devil, and stripping them of all their power. Soon he would lay claim to all authority in heaven and on earth. And what could be more kingly, what could be more royal, than to have all authority vested in himself? All of this, all of this coronation, all of this lifting up of the king of the universe by way of a Roman cross. A Roman cross where Jesus would die for love and where Jesus would forgive his enemies, where by dying he would destroy death and he would disarm his enemies. Now, who could have seen that coming? Who could have seen it? And now my question to you is now who will pledge allegiance to this king? Who will give a life of obedience, a life of worship, a life of faith, a life of dependence? Who will cast themselves on the mercy of the true son purchased at so great a price? Last week, Pastor David, in the call to worship, he 
he shared with us Rome, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms chapter 2. And I wanted to return to that and read just a portion of it. He read us the whole chapter. I want to read a portion of it because it, it speaks prophetically. This is David writing hundreds of years before Jesus, looking forward to this day. And he writes these words. He says that he who sits in heaven laughs. What is he laughing at? He's laughing at Pilate's claim to authority. He's laughing at the Jews trying to put an end to all of this. He's laughing at at Herod's foolish mockery. He's laughing at the crowd's cries of crucify him, crucify him. They do not change anything because Jesus is in charge. God's in charge. He says the Lord holds them in derision. That means he basically disregards them, takes no notice. And then he will speak to them in his wrath. By the way, when you read about God's wrath, In the Bible, that's not a good sign for those to whom it's directed. He will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. This is powerful. And what will he say? He'll say, as for me, as for God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy. God is saying, hey, guys, I already chose my king. I already chose the one who's going to rule for me, and his name is Jesus. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Watch this. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You know what that means? That Jesus is not just a Jewish Messiah. That he is the Messiah calling people from every continent, every nation, every people group. He has asked his father after his act of obedience was complete. He said, God, give me the nations. And Jesus said, and God said, yes. He said, you got it, son. You've got it, son. And they'll come streaming in and they will call him Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And what is Jesus going to do with his possession? Now watch this. You think the North Koreans or the Iranians are a threat? What Jesus says, or God says to Jesus, he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Guess what? Jesus did not lose one wink of sleep last night over geopolitical affairs. He's not worried about global warming. He's not worried about the energy crisis. He's not worried about the Democrats. He's not worried about the Republicans. Jesus, the Father and Jesus, they sit in heaven. They laugh. And and God has already given all the nations to Jesus. And he will come one day and execute all the justice that needs to be executed. Now, Now listen, he says, he says, now, therefore, because Jesus has been given this power, this authority to judge, he, uh, David, in writing this, is warning the leaders of the earth. He says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. David is warning the whole earth the whole earth, that Jesus will not be trifled with. He, was, he submitted himself to be beaten, to be tormented, to be mocked, to be crucified once. It will never happen again. He is now the king enthroned, seated at the right hand of his father. He is the judge of all the earth, and, 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 and he is reserving for judgment, those who would, who would defy him, those who would shake their fist in his face. But wait, but wait, I got good news for you. This isn't some kind of hellfire and brimstone, you, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of type of message. This is what kind of message it is. 
for this last line of the psalm. Listen to it. It's beautiful. So God's wrath is about to be poured out. He's going to break the nations like a clay pot. Listen, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So this king is ruling with a rod of iron and he's going to smash the nations like a clay pot. And yet David tucks this little clause in the, in the end. He says, but wait, hold on. I didn't apply to everybody. If you hear the voice of the spirit and you take refuge in him, you're not only going to be protected from that wrath, you are going to be blessed. That's what Paul was saying this morning. Paul, Paul was saying that, that part of his covenant with God has, has opened up a, an avenue in his life where he has been blessed. And so God is saying, not only will you be protected from the wrath, you'll be blessed if you take refuge in him. Listen to me carefully. The king has been installed. We're not sitting around waiting for him to be installed. He's enthroned. He's got a crown on his head, a scepter in his hand, and he is ruling now. The king has been installed. He's crowned and enthroned. Will you reject his way? Will you seat yourself on his rightful throne and be among those who perish in the way when his wrath is kindled? Or, and this is what I would suggest, will you look to his mercy? Will you look to his victory? Will you look to his crown? And will you wave the white flag of surrender and take refuge in him? The name of the Lord, Proverbs tell us, is a strong tower. The righteous who run in there will be safe. If you do this, if you take up this invitation, you will be loved, you'll be blessed, you'll be saved, you'll be redeemed, you'll be forgiven. And the king sits enthroned, now awaiting your answer. One of the ways a king would indicate his acceptance to you is by making a place for you at his table. David also last week, you helped me a lot with the sermons, by the way, David. David also shared with us a story from uh, from the, the books of Samuel about Mephibosheth. And, and uh, if you haven't aren't familiar with the story, look it up. But one of the ways he would indicate his acceptance, a king would, by inviting you to take a place at his table. Now, remember, his enemies were not invited. The enemies of the king never had a place at the table. The, those who would disregard his rule were thrown out of the king's presence. But those upon whom his favor had rested have a place at the table to sit and they feast with the king forever. There's another great illustration of this. It's in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. He wanted to look at Jesus. Jesus had created quite a buzz and Jesus was going to be passing through his town of Jericho, and he wanted to take a look at him, this famous prophet. Uh, he wanted to just see him from a distance. So being a little guy, he climbed up in a tree to get a better look. But he wouldn't dare try to approach Jesus. I mean, Zacchaeus had done some things that he wasn't real darn proud of. Zacchaeus had lied. He had cheated. He'd stolen. But wouldn't you know, so there he is up in the sycamore tree, and Jesus looks up. And he makes eye contact with Zacchaeus. <laughs> he looks up and his eyes are brimming with love. He looks at Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus starts, his heart starts to beat faster because Jesus started making his way over to him. Although it seemed like a dream, Jesus actually spoke to him. And listen to what he said. He looked at this greedy sinner hiding up in a tree, just wanted to take a little peek at Jesus. And he says, Zacchaeus? Get on down from there. I need to stay with you today. I, I need to have lunch with you today. Let's go. Joyfully, Zacchaeus still in shock. He, he scrambles down the tree and he led Jesus to his home where all 
all that day. They dined and they laughed. But it was also in that moment where in the presence of Jesus and his goodness and his holiness, Zacchaeus begins to feel remorse about the life that he had lived. And he has to do something to make it right. Looking at Jesus and the tender love flowing from that smile, he makes his decision. He says, man, if I have Jesus, it seems to me I have everything. Nothing really more that I need. So I don't need this stuff anymore. In fact, I'm going to give half of this stuff to the poor. And whenever I've ripped someone off, I'm going to pay them back four times. What he had found in the man sitting at his table that day was what he really wanted. All he ever wanted. Can you look at all your pursuits in life and say that, okay, but Jesus is really what I always wanted. I don't need more money, more stuff, more popularity, more success, more, you know, affirmation, more whatever. I just need Jesus. If I'm seated at the table with him, that's that's really quite enough. Jesus' response to all of this, smile so big and say, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham. And Jesus gives his mission statement right here. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Can I give you some happy news? You're welcome at the table if you've taken refuge in the king. Because he's placed his favor upon you. No matter what you've done, you don't have to hide from him. Just between you and me, you can't hide from him. He comes looking for you. And then when he sees you up in the tree, he invites himself into your house to feast with you on the riches of his grace. See, these two tables right here, they they represent the fellowship. They're just a meager representation of the fellowship that all true believers have with the risen king. This bread and this juice, they, 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 uh, they mean something. They remind us that we've been ransomed by God's chosen king, the one that he has installed. And because he have cho- has chosen us, you and I, like Mephibosheth, like Zacchaeus, we will always have a place at his table. Not because of our righteous work, because of his amazing grace. In the bread and the cup, we behold the man. Just like Pilate said, behold the man. In the bread and the cup, we behold the man. He's broken and bleeding for us. He's suffering a punishment that we deserved, but that he endured. In the bread and the cup, we also behold the king. And our hearts are reminded that he made a promise that he will not partake of these elements again until you and I are seated together with him at a table for all eternity. That's when he'll share with us again in his eternal kingdom. And as we taste that bread, as we taste that wine, we can remember what a soon coming and wonderful day that is going to be. Amen. Would you stand with me? The Apostle Paul said these familiar words to the Corinthians. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness that we've sung about today, that that Paul testified about, that Kim sang about, that the worship team exclaimed today, and that I tried to preach today. We thank you for your goodness. And your goodness is not expressed in healing or provision as much as it is in the bloody cross of Jesus Christ, because that is where real healing is given to us, to all who ask. It's where real provision is provided for all who need it. So God, we thank you for your goodness. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And those of us in this room who belong to you, we look to you and we say, not in a mocking voice like the, like the soldiers did, but we say, all hail the King. All hail the King. You have captured our hearts. You have made us who were your enemies. You have made us your friends by your grace, by your forgiveness, by the free gift of your righteousness. We have become your friends. Now, Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask a great request of you. I'm going to ask you to begin to search this congregation. Would you just right now seek out those whose hearts do not belong to you? And Holy Spirit, would you begin to to call their name and call them home, Lord? God, I pray that right where they are, right in their seat, that they would begin to, to surrender their life, God. Lord, help them not to make promises, not to make vows and and write contracts with you, but just simply to say, Lord, I give up. You win. And because you win, I don't lose. Because you win, I win. Because blessed are all of those who take refuge in you. Lord, let them see the narrow path today that leads to refuge in you, Lord. God, do a work in their hearts. Transform them, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we come to the table today, this is just bread, it's just juice, but Lord, we pray that the reality of what you did would cause us to be brought into the the genuine presence of God and that you would speak to us. Lord, shield our hearts from the folly of religious ceremony and let us have an encounter with the living God this morning. Transform us. We love you, Lord Jesus. Bless this moment. Make it holy. Help us to see you and to identify, to fellowship with your suffering and to walk out in the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.